I'm trying to get my Michael Barbaro voice going. How do you think it's working? I don't know what that sounds like. Welcome back to the Maroon Weekly. This is episode six and it's eighth week. I'm Austin. And I'm Miles. And let's get right into the news. On Tuesday, Faculty College Council met to vote on the proposed business economics major. At the meeting, members delayed the vote because they wanted the opportunity to gather more information on the proposal and discuss what the major would realistically look like on campus and how it might affect the student body. This past week, the university held a Coffee on Us campaign to promote inclusivity on campus. Austin, how'd you find that? Uh, well, Miles, I did not have a date for the event. Mm. Moving on. <laughs> Grad Students United withdrew their NLRB case alongside graduate students at Yale University and Boston College in an attempt to deny the newly Republican-dominated NLRB the chance to again flip-flop on the right of grad student workers to unionize under the National Labor Relations Act. Yeah, so my name is Grant MacDonald, and I'm a um, graduate student, fourth year in the Department of Geophysical Sciences. Yesterday was a big day for GSU. Can you tell listeners why? Yeah, so yesterday we withdrew our petition to unionize with the under the NLRB process. But I just want to make very clear that GSU is still a union. We're continuing with unionization. We are ready to bargain for a contract, and we just want to do that outside the NLRB process now. Uh, yesterday, Trump's second pick was confirmed to the Labour Board, which means it's now a majority Republican labor board, a majority anti-worker board, and the university are determined to work with that board to deny graduate workers at private institutions across the country their rights as workers. This way of seeking a contract outside the NLRB process is not like on some, on, this, this happens, this is a normal thing that unions do, um, both, both graduate workers and, and any kind of union. Uh, NYU, for example, has a contract, um, and that was that was a, a private agreement. We want a contract that um, supports the vital work we perform in classrooms and in labs across the university. GSU will will have a lot of discussions. We already been having discussions before. That this doesn't really, I mean, fundamentally, this doesn't change anything because the university. We're, with, we're refusing to bargain with us before we withdrew from the NLRB process. They're refusing right now. The path towards a contract is fundamentally the same. If you want to hear more about that story, our very own Grace Hauk conducted an interview this past week, and you can find that special report on our SoundCloud page and our iTunes page. Grace also had the chance to sit down with some researchers from the Paul Douglas Institute to talk about the controversial Cook County soda tax. The Cook County Sweet and Beverage Tax was suboptimally designed. Oh, I made it quite clear that we enacted this tax because we needed the revenue. If you're looking at the money, right, the, uh, the, the David and Goliath is, is really the county against the beverage industry. But in public perception, it was Tony Preckwinkle and her, you know, rich New York City friends that are trying to, you know, get, get rid of our soda. It's been a couple months now since Cook County's controversial soda tax was repealed. On Friday, I sat down with two student researchers from the Paul Douglas Institute to discuss why the tax failed and what this could mean for future attempts to tax sugars in Chicago. 
My name is David Wyman, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the Citizen Bulletin, and I'm also the project leader of the Paul Douglas Institute project on the Cook County Sweet and Beverage Tax. I'm Teddy Knox, and I'm a researcher with Paul Douglas Institute on the same project as David. And what years are you, and what do you study? I'm a second year, and I'm studying public policy and sociology. I'm a second year in econ and football. And what is the Paul Douglas Institute? Well, we are a group of students who are trying to pool together the student research energy on campus to make an impact on public policy. And that's within UCDI or separate? Uh, we are a separate entity that is affiliated with UCDI. Okay. We use the words research arm, I guess, to describe the connection. And can you tell me a little bit about your most recent research project? So it, had, it all started back in October when we saw strange bits of news coming out about the sweetened beverage tax that it had been passed by a razor-thin margin in 2016, and then two months after it went into effect, it was repealed by a 15-2 to 2 vote. And to us, that was, like, extraordinary, because you don't see taxes getting passed and then repealed like that. On October 11th, it was repealed. And in December 1st, the repeal went into effect. Got it. And so when this was all happening in October, we were like, well, gosh, there must be, like, a lot more going on below the surface here. And that's when we uh, got our research team together and we started work. Can you kind of give me the breakdown of what the beverage tax actually said and what it affected? This beverage tax was a tax not just on soda, but on all sugar-sweetened beverages, which can, could include things like, like apple juice, you know, things that are typically not subject to soda taxes. Right, and so it was, even though people say soda tax when we talk right. about it colloquially, that's kind of a misnomer because it is. it's more like a sweet tax. Even sugar-sweetened beverage tax is kind of reductive because it included diet sodas, which is a big Absolutely. controversy. Absolutely, yeah. It included, included things with artificial sweeteners. Pretty much any drink that's not water was Yeah, was anything taxed. that's not water or like 100% like, you know, natural fruit and, mm -hmm. and such. Yeah, and it was a one cent per ounce tax. Right, okay. which is a very, and it was levied on the consumer level, which is um, a distinction that actually turned out to be very, very important. And that was one of the most fascinating things about this project for me was that buried in like the details of the technicalities of like exactly how the tax was being implemented and levied and collected were all of these like legal and technical problems that like were the beginning of the end for the tax itself. So how many people were working on this project? Five. Uh, Philip Adams, we had Sean Hu, we had uh, Russell Xu, and then we also had uh, Pablo Balsinde. We talked with commissioners and, and commissioners' offices. We talked with health advocates and uh, also advocates on the other side and, and, and retailer representatives. And what conclusions did you draw? The Cook County Sweet and Beverage Tax was suboptimally designed. It was the victim of not only a very hostile tax environment and of a very well-funded opposition, Part of Who was spearheading that opposition? Um, the beverage industry and the retailers. Okay. But in, in addition, it, a big uh, part of the problem was that the entire like manner in which the project of the soda tax was conceived was totally different from how successful soda taxes have been proposed. So our paper reads essentially like a lessons learned. We look at everything we found out through the design, implementation, and messaging process, you know, talking with a bunch of interviews and also doing some... Uh, you know, media analysis of, of newspapers and public comments, and, and we found that the mistakes, so to speak, um, in the in the tax campaign, 
uh, fall into three categories. The first of those is the design of the tax itself. Uh, like David mentioned, it was levied on the consumer, um, and that makes it hugely unpopular, just way more noticeable right, to the person buying it, and also causes massive implementation yeah, a series difficulties. series of technicalities, and that decision was partially because of legal, legal restrictions put on Cook County by the state of Illinois, and also partly because the way that they chose to structure it, um, having it be collected at the distributor level, but then having retailers reimburse themselves by passing the tax on to consumers just created mm. just a very complicated structure that was not like very well attuned to the format of, of sugar-sweetened beverages. So to put this in perspective for listeners, can you give us an example of a successful tax? The most successful examples come from California, actually. So right. uh, we, we saw cases in Berkeley had mm-hmm. a successfully passed soda tax. Um, did they work in, in Richmond and El Monte? Uh, not in Richmond and El Monte, but in Oakland and in San Francisco. So in California, are these taxes being levied at the consumer level as well or elsewhere? Uh, these, these taxes were targeted at the distributor level um, when it was like legally possible to do so. But the key difference in these taxes is the manner in which they were conceived and proposed. These taxes were proposed like on the, on the citizen level, on the grassroots level, by committees of people from the local community and health advocates who were concerned about limiting diabetes and obesity and the impact that that was having on their communities. This tax, on the other hand, was conceived of by a politician, Tony Preckwinkle, because she needed to fill a budget hole. And the other two taxes that she had proposed to fill the budget hole didn't attract enough political support. Which were those other two proposals? Uh, there was a proposal to increase the amusement tax, and there was a proposal to levy a hotel room tax. And those failed to attack political support, so she's like, you know what? Well, let's try a soda tax. But that's not apparently not how you can do it at all. Because we talked to um, the person who actually ran the campaigns in Berkeley mm-hmm. and in Oakland, and what he told us was that you have to have people on the ground in the communities educating about health for months or even a year prior to the tax, and that you have to have like a lot of community support and community buy-in. So it has to come from the bottom up and not the top down. If you look at all the comments Tony Pregwinkle made about the tax, 85% of the time she's talking about the budget. Okay, so almost always it's, look, if we don't pass this tax, we're going to cut this and this and this service, or if we don't pass this tax, we're not going to have a budget. You know, all that, and that's always how we, you know, we have her on video saying, this was never about health, this is about the budget. Well, first of all, the tax is about revenue. I think I've shared many times with folks that we had three choices on the table that would have raised roughly $200 million that we need to close our budget gap. The first was property taxes, and our commissioners, not one commissioner, was prepared to support an increase in the property tax. The second was an increase in the sales tax. Two commissioners suggested that would be a good idea. One of, only one of them said they would vote for it. Um, and then we chose as a revenue generator, the sweetened beverage tax, which had been enacted around the country, both for the revenue and because of the health benefits, but first and foremost because of the revenue. And all of the evidence indicates that that is just a terrible messaging strategy, that you need to sell people on, this is going to improve the health of the county. Yeah. We reviewed um, a lot of the scientific literature and case studies from like almost every single instance of proposing a soda tax in the United States, and almost every time when they tried to make it about the budget, they failed. And almost all of the successful cases were health-related framing. So you mentioned several cases in California. Have we seen any successful or semi-successful cases outside of California? Um, Well, the California ones were the main ones that uh, we focused on. There's just like a very unique environment in California, and there's the sort of political atmosphere as such that they're more willing to accept uh, a government 
intervention to solve those problems. Mm-hmm. So no, we haven't seen a lot outside of California, but it's it's a growing movement. You know, these are, have all happened in the, in the yeah. past few years, and and we know that more and more cities are, are yeah. considering these taxes in light of the yeah. you know growing obesity epidemic. So okay, these three things. First, the design itself, as well. Second, advocacy. Third, messaging. Mm-hmm. Yep. If these were implemented for perhaps like a new sugar sweet beverage tax in Chicago, do you think it would be possible here, or do you think Chicago's just not ready for something like this? Well, David and I disagree on this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, I think now there's no chance it's going to happen because they've already formed their opinion. You know, it, it's 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 done. When you now. say they, who do you mean? I mean like the the public. And Teddy, you disagree. I'm a lot less optimistic than David, or you know, from the perspective of <laughs> I, I just. I think even if you, we had gone two years back and, and the county had done everything right in terms of trying to get it passed, I still don't, don't think it would have worked. Um, and this is just from my experience of reading through a few thousand of the public comments that were submitted you know, during the repeal campaign. And you know, 90% plus of people just hate the tax. You know? And I, I think this is a, a, um, you know, a part, part of it is the tax climate of Cook County, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Chicago Absolutely. has, what, what is the? We have um, the highest combined sales tax rate in the entire, we're tied for having the highest Between, combined sales tax you know, rate in the entire Illinois, country. Cook County, and Chicago, like, yeah. you know, the, the people here are just taxed pretty brutally, yeah. and I think that they're, the, the tax fatigue is real, and so my mm-hmm. prediction is it would have been kind of impossible. So, yeah. and, you know, because of these major disagreements, because we don't have a lot of, you know, really rigorous, you know, and anything scientific to back up those claims, our paper steers away from being a what-if paper, mm-hmm. and is more of a, um, you know, what factors can we concretely show yeah. decreased political viability? And we think that this is also a very unique case because I don't know where that I'm aware of in like the history of soda taxes has there been in the United States has there been a soda tax that was proposed and was passed and was then repealed. Usually, like if it passes, it stays, and if it's repealed, then it's done. But the fact that like Tony Preckwinkle, she won in the the Cook County commissioners, but she lost in the court of public opinion. So when did? we start having soda taxes in the United States? Mm. Last five years or so, right? Yeah, in the last several years. I mean, we've had... It's, it's really interesting because there's sort of two types of, like, soda taxes that have two different historical uh, patterns and two different levels of visibility. So, for example, Chicago has actually had a 3% ad valorem tax, or, like, a, like that's a 3% of, like, the sale price tax on, on soda, and that's been there since, like, the 90s. Mm. But it's... And those taxes were never framed really in terms of health issues. But the advent of the per ounce tax, right, and by per ounce that means it decreases, it's, it's uh, disincentivizing consumption. These per ounce taxes are rising to like um, disincentivize consumption in order to improve health. Those things are new that's, that have been arising in the last several years as there's been an increased awareness about the obesity epidemic and about the role of sugar-sweetened beverages and soda in particular in diabetes. I think we saw a statistic that something like one-third of the increase in caloric intake of the average American in the last like 20 or 30 years is due to sugar-sweetened beverages. The way that they implemented the tax ended up um, coming into conflict with a rule against taxing food stamps, right? And and um, the That's way a federal rule, yeah, right? there's a federal rule that you're not allowed to levy a tax on food stamps. And um, the Cook County thought they could get around it with some clever like language, clever procedural maneuvering. It didn't work, right? And the retailers 
um, were like, oh, these people were completely disorganized. They didn't care about the impact on us. They didn't care about the impact on our businesses. They were just trying to get as much money, tax as many people as possible to get as much money as possible without having to put effort into making it work. And the government people were like, the retailers are deliberately sowing confusion. They're trying to give us trouble in the court system. They're deliberately causing more confusion than is necessary mm -hmm. in order to like mislead the public. But it also can't be discounted that um, like the beverage industry and the retailers have like a playbook for like opposing these soda taxes, and they engage in a lot of unsavory tactics. So there was a there was a group called the Can the Tax Coalition that represented uh, you know work from a lot of retailers and a lot of people from the beverage industry, um, and they you know had offices. They had they were paying people to go out and sort of cannabis anti tax yeah. and uh, you know doing a lot of media messaging and stuff, publishing studies and many many advertisements. And the crazy thing is because the data isn't publicly available, we don't even know like how much money they spent on advertisements. The fact that they threatened um, commissioners that if they didn't vote to repeal the soda tax, they would set up a super PAC and bankroll opponents in their next election. Um, and now, um, Tony Pregmichel now has an opponent in her primary election, um, which before she was expected to sail through. One of the interesting things that happened was that we had Bloomberg come in from outside the community and spend millions of dollars on television advertisements, and that almost became a talking point. That, that didn't play well. Yeah, people yeah. felt like, because, you know, when, when it's, if you're looking at the money, right, the, uh, the, the David and Goliath is, is really the county against the beverage industry. But in public perception, it was Tony Preckwinkle and her, you know, rich New York City friends that are trying to, you know, get, get rid of our soda. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think one of the interesting things is that, like, the, the retailers and the beverage industry had a network of people embedded throughout the county that they could mobilize instantly because of the fact that there are 6,000 people employed in these retail stores that sell the beverages, in like the bottling plants that, that like, you know, do the manufacturing, in the distributors and the truck drivers. So you had like this strange, like surreal situation where you had like the Teamsters and the businesses working, the labor and business working together to defeat a proposal. And because, I mean, you had like commissioners who were saying that one of the reasons why they changed their mind and switched to repeal the tax was because they had people in like the like Commissioner Daly. His public reason was that he had hundreds of people in the uh, Pepsi bottling plant in his district calling him saying they were going to lose their jobs and they were scared that they were going to lose their jobs if this tax passed because the industry wouldn't be sustainable. So you you, you have this balancing effect where if the tax doesn't get passed, the county has a budget gap and has to lay off a bunch of workers. And if the tax does get passed, then soda takes a hit and has to lay off some workers. And so yeah. we, we, we can't say for sure. It, it looks like it probably would have about balanced out, but you still have a lot of yeah. angry, you know, beverage employees. Yeah. From all of our research and from all of the um, scientific evidence that we found of the health effects of soda and the consumption effects of levying taxes, we found, I mean, I personally believe that a soda tax is an effective way to increase public health in a community while generating uh, revenue. It just has to be done the right it way. It just has to be done the right way, and the Cook County soda tax certainly was not. Teddy, you look skeptical. I think I might just look like that. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that's a cake. <laughs> nice. <laughs> On Friday, I sat down with David Weisskopf, a first year in the college, and an organizer of counter-protesting in favor of Steve Bannon's invitation to speak on campus. Hi, I'm David Weisskopf. Um, I'm a first year in the college, and I am a physics major. What I care about more 
than partisan politics is that we have a free society. And what that means is that you can do whatever you want as long as you don't bother me. So I'm fine with you dating whomever you want as long as you don't bother me. I'm fine with you uh, doing whatever you want with your body as long as you don't bother me. I'm fine with you doing whatever you want with your family as long as you don't bother me. However, if you start to bother me or start to try and force me to do things with my own life or with my own decisions, that's a point where I will be forced to act. So how would you describe yourself? So I would describe myself as a classical liberal, which puts me on the more conservative side of the spectrum. Uh, I'm definitely very fiscally conservative, uh, but socially I am more liberal than one might expect. And I know because the sort of demographic of college students mm -hmm. is more liberal, just because the age demographic is more liberal. Right. Sometimes people have concerns about whether conservative voices have a space on campus. Have you found that that's the case, that you have a place you can, can you know, converse and dialogue, or has that been difficult for you? Uh, I think I have. Uh, it was not easy the first quarter to find a place where there are many like-minded individuals, but that's fine because I'm not here because I want to be with like-minded individuals. I'm here because I want to be with people who aren't like-minded, so I can test my ideas and they can test theirs and I can learn from them. Uh, one thing as a conservative and a classical liberal is that I'm not afraid to listen to other people, which is one of the main points uh, of my ban and protest is that we shouldn't be afraid. We really shouldn't. If you really have that strong a conviction in your own beliefs, you shouldn't be afraid or have fear that they will be delegitimized by one speaker at one college event. So on our side, uh, I, don't want to use, I don't even want to say our side. I just want to say on the counter-protest side, uh, there are different people of different creeds, different ideas, and that's what, the main, I, that's what was most important, was that we all had different ideas. On the protester side, they all had one idea. They chanted as one hive mind, one voice, and it was powerful. It was pretty powerful, that one voice. However, as a person who strongly believes in diversity, but not just diversity of skin color or sexual orientation, but diversity of mind and diversity of idea, I think that this was definitely a situation where there wasn't much, if any, diversity of mind on, that, on the other side, on the processing side. However, on the counter-processing side, you had people who supported Bannon, who supported Trump, who didn't support Trump, who didn't support Bannon. You had people, even in the classical sense of diversity, who weren't, who were part of the LGBT community, who were people of color, and who were not from the top 1% of the socioeconomic stratus. And that's true diversity in a sense. Whereas you had, even though that physically these people were diverse on the opposite side, um, they all had one idea that they were all behind and they all agreed on. So if I understand correctly, you're, you're, you're saying that on the like pro-Bannon should be able to come to campus side, mm -hmm. you're all united by the idea that he should be able to come to campus, but you hold different reasons for that belief. Uh, correct. So I would just push back by saying that on the anti-invitation side, they're all united by the idea that they don't want Bannon to come to campus, but I think there are different 
groups within that who have different reasonings for why that's true. See, the one part of a liberal concept called intersectionality is that all oppression is from one is, is is the same. It comes from one source of oppression. Everyone's oppression is linked. That's the principle of intersectionality. And under that principle, uh, you could say, for example, my my oppression because I am an illegal immigrant or is similar to an African American's oppression because they were their great grandparents were slaves and they didn't have equal rights in this country. And that's something that's very toxic to individualism and individual struggles for your own civil rights, in my opinion. Uh, it's very effective in garnering a large crowd and getting people under one umbrella and one belief. Um, but in doing so, you sacrifice a lot of individuality and individual thinking that I think is very critical to one's own development of ideas and opinions. Uh, and I think that can be very fatal for a society. So as I understand it, intersectionality is the idea that many people have issues, mm -hmm. but we can solve them by working together. And I don't exactly see why that's different than, you know, you, a classic liberal and a, you know, pro-Trump conservative and a maybe, you know, neo-conservative getting together and saying we all have similar things we care about and we can solve them if we work together. Right. Well, first, I want to make clear that as a classical liberal, that is falling on the conservative side of the spectrum for anyone who's listening who's confused about the term or what that what that means or what that entails. Um, and then I'd like to answer your question. So uh, on the counter-processing side, what was so great about all of us is that we all were there and had different reasons for supporting this. We had different reasons why we were there to support Bannon's right to speak. It all was under the umbrella of free speech, but none of it was because we were all being oppressed for some reason. And none of it was that we are a victim. It was all that we want to hear him speak because we think that it will better society. It will better society if we are able to hear from everyone's viewpoints, regardless of their side of the spectrum or their take, because it will allow us to internalize what they say, think about it, then decide to make our own opinion on it. And that's in a first person, that's on a first person basis. You hear him speak directly, not through any media outlets, not through any editing that could have gone down on a CNN show or a certain website. Uh, you hear it directly from the mouth of the man. You hear it directly from him. You are able to even ask him a question that potentially can change his own mind. And that's what I think is most powerful about these encounters between students and very powerful people in society who are very opinionated and who have affected the outcomes of even presidential elections. I think that if you really dislike Bannon, this is your chance. This is maybe the one chance you'll have to change his opinion on society. You could be the person who changes what Bannon thinks. And I think that's extremely powerful. And if I was a person, and I am a person who opposes Bannon, I'm telling you, I would be there in a flash. And I would be definitely ready to ask him a question that would stump him or attempt to stump him and make him reevaluate his worldview such that it may agree with yours, even so much slightly more so that he is less of anathema to you or your beliefs.
So you explained a lot what the counter-protesting argument is. What what do you diagnose as the argument people are making against inviting? So what I understand to be their argument is that Steve Bannon is a racist, sexist, homophobe who is shouldn't be allowed to be on campus because he supports all these right-wing white uh, white nationalist extremist groups. And I think that he's not really a racist. Um, and he's not even a white nationalist. He's just a nationalist. And what does nationalism involve? It involves all the civilians and citizens of one country coming together. The argument is not that Steve Bannon has gone out on stage and espoused specifically racist or homophobic sexist beliefs. It's that as the leader of an organization, that being Breitbart, he was responsible for the publishing of material that was racist, sexist, etc. I mean, there was a section of Breitbart dedicated to black crime. And as the leader of that organization, he is culpable for having put those out there. And he is culpable for the effect of those words on people. Black crime, like you said, that's a fact. People commit crimes. White people commit crimes. Hispanics commit crimes. Jews commit crimes. Blacks commit crimes. Everyone commits crimes. Like, there's there's nothing there that seems... I mean, I'm not African-American. I'm not black. I can't speak to what a black person feels. But to me, that's not racist as long as he's not saying blacks commit crimes because of some characteristic that they are black or just because they are black. As long as he's saying that they're committing crimes, here's why, and it's cultural or it's a fact or it's a truthful statement uh that is not saying that they're black therefore they commit crime then that is not racist to me one of the other main arguments they're making against steve bannon is that the university of chicago is not the venue that should be hosting someone like steve bannon (laughs) of anywhere in the world it should be the university of chicago as an institution that prides itself on being a bastion of free speech and expression and being a bastion of the life of the mind and of thinking critically, it should be a place where the students would die, well, not literally die, but like would love to see and would die to see a man like Steve Bannon, who is either totally diametrically opposed from them in their beliefs or even aligned with them or even is somewhat opposed to in their beliefs and be able to critically think about what he's trying to say to you and what you and then interact with him through a question and answer period session um, and you can influence his opinion which is I think the most powerful thing like I said before in the world to be able to influence a powerful man's opinion even if we don't like him and I don't like him I still have to admit he's a very powerful man and he influenced a lot of people in this past two years of this country Um, and I think that's very powerful and out of anywhere of any institution in the world the University of Chicago should be the one place that Bannon should be allowed to speak. So are you sympathetic to the argument that the university as a entity has a responsibility to its students who have felt attacked by things propagated by Steve Bannon and also to the community that the university resides in? The university is a private institution and has no no active responsibility to the community of Hyde Park. However, it does choose to be very responsible and very active in community politics and policy uh, and social life. Yes, it's a private institution. 
Uh, historically, the, the University of Chicago has always been a private institution. Never no, I'm saying is never, it true that the university has been very active positively as a community? Uh, not always, but we're talking about the current present. Uh, that the University of Chicago is very currently active in the community for social change, for different, the University of School program is one very large example that happens at the school. Um, and it's very active in the community. There's, the university has no legal, no legal responsibility like a public institution. However, the university does choose to be active and help the surrounding community and employ people from the surrounding community. Um, and I think that if I was a member of the Woodlawn community, I'd be very happy that the university is here in the first place to bring this economic wealth with it, as well as its intellectual wealth. And I know that uh, there are many people who in the community who may be upset by inviting Steve Bannon, and I've seen them actively protest that. Um, but they are not part of the university itself, and they don't, I don't want to say they don't have a voice, but they don't really, shouldn't really impact what the university does. And the fact that the university already invited Bannon as part of the charter that they sent out uh, to the newly admitted students in those letters, uh, I think it was two years ago, uh, they, ha they have a responsibility to the speaker and to, their, to that letter and to their mission statement to follow through with invite the invitation to Bannon and his cohort. Uh, and I think that's, if you really want to say that someone shouldn't speak or someone should be invited, you shouldn't invite them in the first place. There was, an already, there was already an invitation extended. Uh, so I think that no matter what happens, the university cannot cancel that invitation. Uh, risking, otherwise they would risk jeopardizing their, uh, their, their position as a bastion of free speech. As always, check out our sister pod, The Arts Cast, which drops on Wednesdays, and you can find that on our SoundCloud and iTunes page. We've got a number of cool events coming up for you this week. Tomorrow, in Rosenwald, the English and Economics Departments are teaming up to present a special screening of The Pursuit of Happiness, followed by a discussion on inequality and wealth. On Wednesday at 12 p.m., three reporters from WBEZ and Politico will be in Ida Noise for a roundtable on the 2018 Illinois elections. On Thursday in Fulton Hall at 4.30 p.m., the Jazz Combo will be performing this week's Tea Time concert. Time for the weekly tech fact. James Damore's labor complaint against Google was shut down this past week. Damore filed a labor complaint with the NLRB asserting that Google violated labor laws when firing him. For context, James Damore is a Google employee who wrote the very high-profile anti-diversity memo which was circulated internally at Google last summer. That's all we've got for you this week. Thanks to David Weisskopf for chatting with me. Teddy Knox and David Wyman for sitting down with Grace. Aaron Sennon for his excellent musical accompaniment. Ben Kent and the entire Logan Cage staff for our equipment. And Catherine McDonald for her absolutely heroic support of this project. I'm Austin. And I'm Miles. And we'll catch you next week, Monday at 9 a.m. 